Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, an episode that premiered in August of 2011, it's an episode we call Close to the Edge.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Little Death up top. Beautiful. I love it. And this is Bubble Club behind me now. We're calling this episode Close to the Edge, folks, because we're in the dog days of summer at this point, and I think we're all feeling a little bit close to the edge. I feel close to the edge of your butt. These are stories wherein people found themselves well within the boundaries around which were an edge or thereabouts. Our first story comes to us from the editor of ESPN Magazine. Gary Velsky, everyone! He writes for Time also. Gary is such an impressive figure. Just such a striking person and a kind person. It's just super cool to have him on the show. He told this story at the Risk Live show in New York City at the People's Improv Theater. It is called... The fall. So her name was Jenny, and she was a 22 year old intern just out of college at the St. Louis Business Journal, where I was a cub reporter. And from the moment I met her, probably in early June, I was smitten. She was awesome. She liked me too, I think, because we started spending a lot of time together. But all of our dates, or all of our time together, never ended the way I wanted it to, which was romantically. And I was a little bit uh, timid. I had grown up uh, in an Orthodox Jewish household and spent a lot of time in yeshivas and rabbinical seminaries. And so I didn't really have a lot of moves. Or as I like to think about it, I was profoundly respectful of a woman's right to initiate. And... (laughs) Um, But we kept hanging out, and it's good that I didn't initiate, because about a month into that summer, I happened to walk by her desk, and she was scribbling feverishly on a a yellow legal pad, and uh, she explained to me that she was writing a letter, this was 1986, to her best friend from college. A a few hours later, I was sitting at my desk, and she came by to say goodbye because she was leaving for the day, and at that moment, the editor-in-chief of the magazine came to her and asked her a question, so she turned away. And I realized that the legal pad she was holding was at eye level. And being a very good reporter, I started to read it. And it didn't take me long to get to me. And in it, she described me as a guy she really liked. She was hanging out a lot with, but she didn't want to touch. And right then, she turned around. And she didn't know I was reading her legal pad, but I was pretty much comatose from that moment on and really just kind of wanting to go home and go to bed. And we said goodbye. And I got over it the next day. And we kept hanging out for probably another month or two. We were both going to be leaving for for good. I was going to be moving to New York to come work for Crane's New York business, and she was going to be traveling the world for a year, maybe two. Towards the end of the summer, um, we were spending every weekend together. We were spending many nights a week together. She seemed to like me more, but again, I was very respectful of a woman's right to initiate. And uh, on a Thursday before a weekend when we had plans for Sunday, I said, what do you want to do on Sunday? And she was like, well, I was thinking that we should go skydiving. And I did what most people do when somebody says I was thinking of going skydiving, which is say, oh, I've always wanted to go skydiving too. What I didn't say was, but I never have because I'm terrifically afraid of heights. Like, I can't get on a ladder. I also didn't think, like, nobody says that and actually means it, but the next day Jenny came in and said, guess what, I made reservations for us at a skydiving place in Sparta, Illinois, which is about an hour and a half outside of St. Louis. 
And I was like, great. And we hung out that weekend, Saturday night too. We actually wrote, she had an idea to write our last wills and testaments and mail them to ourselves in case. <laughs> if things worked out fine, we could just get them. If they didn't, we'd be able to sort of leave word to the, our loved ones. And she thought that was a great idea. I was just getting progressively terrified. But the next morning, Sunday morning, I was at her house at seven o'clock and we drove in my Isuzu all the way uh, to, out to Sparta, Illinois. And we got to the place about nine o'clock, about 8.30 for a nine o'clock beginning and we were going to basically the, the way it would work was we were doing what was called a solo static line jump which is you're going to jump out of the plane by yourself but your parachute this is 1986 but your parachute was going to be tethered by a static line to the plane so it would it would pull it for you the idea was we learned that you jump out of the plane you'd feel nothing for a second then you'd feel a giant pull which was good because that meant your chute had deployed and then a pop which was also good because that meant the static line had broken away from the parachute and then you'd glide nicely down onto the ground. Anyway, the class started at 9 o'clock. <laughs> the class started at, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. The class started at 9 o'clock. And for about an hour, we were treated to visuals of what it would look like after we jumped when we raised our heads. Ideally, by the way, what you want to see is a rectangular piece of cloth filled with air. <laughs> that was the first thing I understood. But so, for example, if you saw nothing, that would be bad. If you saw, like, fabric bunched together like a beach ball, also very bad. And over the course of the hour, they explained to you what to do in all these different situations. We broke, then came back, gave us the same hour with a different instructor. Broke, came back, the same hour with a diff another instructor. Five hours, five different instructors, the same course. Now, everybody else was getting impatient, including Jenny, because they really wanted to get out there and jump from that plane. I was delirious with our deep dive into um, parachute theory because I didn't really want to jump at all. I was terrified, but I didn't want to let Jenny know that. Anyway, at about 2, 2.30, we went out and we, we watched our chutes being packed. Normally, you want to pack your own chute, but the first time is you don't know what you're doing, but you want to sort of own it. And you want to watch them packing your chute because it's very important that, they, that the folds go back and forth. And then we did a short course on the, uh, the drop and roll, which is what you do with a round parachute. But you need to know how to drop and roll because in case the main chute doesn't open, you will have an emergency chute, and the emergency chute is round. Now, the good news, they explained, was that if you fainted because your main chute didn't open, <laughs> there was an explosive charge tied to your chute, and the explosive char charge was tied to an altimeter, so if you were falling at a certain speed below a certain altitude, a charge would explode and the main, the emergency parachute would open. So while you would land, awkwardly, you'd be alive. Maybe break, break a few bones. Everybody else seemed to get great uh, comfort from this, but the idea that... <laughs> the idea that I could be falling unconscious and then have something explode on my chest, <laughs> to me, was terrifying. Um, but we got into the plane, it was a Cessna four-seater, and the back seat was taken out. There was the pilot, there was the jump master, and there was the four of us, I was last one in. That was significant, because when we got to 3,000 feet, I basically gave up the ghost of trying to pretend that, that I really wanted to skydive, and I said, I don't think I can do this, I have a terrific fear of heights. <laughs> and, and Jenny said, um, you didn't tell me that. And I was thinking, there's a lot I haven't told you. Uh, but the guy, I'm sure, had seen this before the jump master. He said, well, that's fine. You don't have to jump. But you're the last one in, and you need to be the first one out because we can't start shuffling around because the chutes have to be very, you know, they have to be pristine and tightly packed. I don't know if this was true or not, but he said, 
we would have to land, we would be in the back of the queue of the other airplanes, and your friends might not be able to jump. Now, he clearly recognized that while I'm a coward, I'm a team playing coward. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fine. So I jump, and the jump goes as follows. When you're doing a, a, a static line solo jump, you, the, you open up the fuselage door at 3,000 feet, traveling 70 miles per hour, and you, you hang your leg. I'm very good in a crisis in general, so I was able to do this. You hang your legs over the side, and you affix your static line to the plane. Then you look at the, you look at the jump master, and you go like this, because it's very loud. And he goes like this, and that means you're ready. And then you lean forward, and you grab the strut that connects the plane wing to the plane fuselage. It's like a bar like this. And the idea is you grab it, you swing yourself down, you look back at the jump master, and you count to three and then let go. Now, time, they now know, uh, is a function of how much information you're absorbing. And so these three... The next few seconds uh, I remember very clearly because they, it felt like they went for a long time. But I, I leaned forward, I grabbed the strut, I let myself go, I looked back to the instructor and we started counting. We went one, and I remember thinking, why am I outside of the plane? <laughs> but in kind of an evil biological way, like it, just, it wasn't like a rational thought, it was just like, I'm in a plane, I'm supposed to be inside of it, not outside of it. <laughs> Two, I remember thinking, why are they having us count to three? I can barely hold on now. And three, I fell. And I fell back. It felt like a few seconds. I think that's what it was. And then all of a sudden, I felt a really big jerk. And I was like, that's good. My chute is deployed. And then I felt a pop. And I was like, that's good. My parachute and my static line have separated. And then I started twisting around like a corkscrew. Now, we had walkie-talkies affixed to us that had a two-way communication. I don't remember any of this, and I really don't remember much of what happened later, but it was recounted to me by the people on the ground who apparently were talking to me, and I was talking to them, but I didn't know it. And essentially, after I realized that we were corkscrewing, I looked up and said out loud, oh, left end cell closure. I need to take my right hand, pull down the middle, of the, uh, the middle left rope back towards my right ear, which I did. And it popped open the left side of my chute, which had, which had been tangled, which is why I, had, I was spinning around like that. And then I said, again out loud, oh, so that's why they had us do that class five times. <laughs> I don't remember that. But when I landed, that, when I landed, that was recounted to me. And then and they, the guy walked up, ran over to me, the tr truck sort of picks you up and takes you back to the jump center. And one of the guys goes, dude, you had chute failure and you crushed it. <laughs> But of course, Jenny doesn't see it, because she's in the plane. She hasn't jumped yet. <laughs> so they tell her about it, and she's like, oh, that's good, because like, she jumped, and it was fine, and I jumped, and it was fine. We go to the parking lot, and she had brought a t-shirt for the ride back home, and she takes off her shirt, and she's just there in a bra, and I was like, well, that's interesting. And then we went home, and we had drinks, and she invited me up to her place, but I didn't go, because I was tired, and I was late, and she doesn't want to touch me in my head, which is what I think, and at this point, I am taking respect for a woman's right to initiate to like Antioch college levels. Uh, I never jumped again, but I did see Jenny. I left a couple weeks later to go to New York and she left to go around the world, but we kept in touch. She would send me postcards and once in a while call me and she said, you want to meet me in Japan? This was about September of 1987. I was like, sure. And I went to Japan and we spent two and a half weeks together hitchhiking around the country. Uh, still never touched her because I was just sort of madly in love with her and terrified. On the last night, she'd give me a present. And the present was uh, the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was her favorite book, and she wanted me to have it. And it's a short book, and so she goes, you should read it to me. And so I read it to her. It took about two hours. And by the end of the two hours, she had basically was sidled up to me so close that I don't think I could have moved my head without kissing her, which I did. 
and she seemed to like touching me at that point. And the next morning, we woke up, we were having breakfast, and she said, well, last night was interesting, which is not necessarily what you want to hear from somebody after pining for them for 15 months. But she explained that she was surprised because she had been interested in me for a while, but had thought that I wasn't interested in her. And what I told her was, well, you know, sometimes your feelings for people change. But of course, what I should have said was, well, sometimes your feelings about yourself change. Because a year after I had the guts to jump out of a plane for Jenny Petzal, I had the nerve to jump out of a plane for Jenny Petzal. Thank you. This is Aries by Blood Diamonds behind me now. We're going to hear a story by the beautiful, charming artist, Cami Climaco. Cami is a very dear sweetheart and a friend. And we call her story, Mama Told Me Not to Come. about living in New York for so many years, like a million years, is every time I go home, and my home is in Independence, Ohio, it's incredibly jarring. Um, You're sitting in a room with 40 of your closest family members, and you look around and you're like, oh my God, I'm the only Democrat here. And you want to scream, I just had 40 abortions by a gay doctor who um, loves Cher. But you just hold it inside and uh, whisper to yourself, well, I whisper to myself, I think I might die here. It's the 2007, it's Christmas. My mother is giving Grace at dinner. She does the whole thing, Grace, Grace, Grace. God bless us for the food, whatever, whatever. Thank God for everything. And then she looks me in the eye and she says, and God bless George Bush. And I look at her back and I'm making the face like, listen, lady, you better get this grace over with. It's done. And those sort of things, when I go home, they they sort of force me to go to TJ Maxx and just like relax and like, you know, just gather myself for a few hours. You know, I just like to look at the socks and the housewares. How do they do it? It's simultaneously relaxing and uplifting. It's better than smoking cigarettes. After that Christmas, I was talking to my mom on the phone. My mom's so sweet, and she wouldn't hurt a fly. She, she's just, you know, she has some weird views. She was like, 
how is your friend Sarah? And I was like, oh my God, she had her baby, but the baby came so early and it has been an intensive care for three weeks. And she was like, oh, isn't her husband foreign? And I was like, yeah, he's Canadian. And she was like, see, that's why. And I was like, what, what, see, that's why what? I'm pretty sure just because they use the metric system, I'm pretty sure they still speak English. Wait, not all of them. So back in Williamsburg, none of those weird small town problems exist. I live in the epicenter of cool in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where people aren't really afraid of Canadians. And I don't have to think about a lot of stuff. I mean, my biggest decision is what do I wear to get toilet paper? What do I have to eat, brick oven pizza or taco trucks? And then, of course, what politics to follow, Democrats or ambivalence, because there is no other way. And certainly no one blesses George Bush at, at any meal, and people cannot wait to get rid of him. Every election in New York City is really exciting. The 2004 election was such a disaster, and the 2008 election was going to be just as close. Nobody wanted to lose this one. So anticipation is mounting, and you can feel it's in the air. We were, you know, getting a million robocalls on election day. It was such a beautiful day. It was sunny, and everything was so bright and hopeful. We were so excited. We were walking to the polls, my husband and I, and we see our neighbor who owns a restaurant in the neighborhood. She's like, come to my restaurant tonight. It's going to be super fun. We're going to play music, and we're going to project the election on the wall, really huge, and there's going to be free drinks. And we were so excited. We were like, thank you so much. We don't have any plans. Awesome. So that night, we go to the restaurant. And the restaurant's so pretty, and there's a disco ball. It looks like an art gallery slash movie theater slash hangout spot. There's Missy Elliott playing, and the disco lights are everywhere. And there's people running around, like a guy in blue glasses with a caftan, and another one with a handlebar mustache, and another one with bruises. I don't know where the bruises came from, but I'm with my people. Do you know what I mean? We're all together. We're all feeling it. We're all watching the election results roll in state by state, and we're all really excited. McCain comes on and gives his concession speech. Obama wins, and the whole restaurant, 40 people, are crazy, jumping on the sofas and bouncing off the walls, and the energy is crazy, and we're so, everyone's fully elated, and you've never been in a room with such happy people. And I was sitting there, and I was like, half tempted to call, go outside and call my mom and be like, that's what you get, old lady. My man won. But I did. I held back. I was like, I'm going to call her as soon as I finish this party. It was so exciting. You could almost smell the joy. And then I was like, whoa, what's going on here? I actually do smell something in the air. And it smells exactly like smoke. And we're sitting there. And I look at Warren and I was like, do you smell that? And he was like, no, and I was like, and then we go back to the cheering because the party is like in full effect. So I'm, I'm getting like concerned. I'm like, it's so weird, and nobody else is noticing, just me. And so I'm like, what is this crazy smell? It smells like burning rubber. And I look up, and the whole ceiling is full of fingers of smoke that's crawling its way towards us, and the whole room is filling with smoke. Two seconds later, the waiter screams. Everybody out! We grab our stuff and head towards the door. But we're headed right into the smoke. So the smoke's coming at us. The smell is terrifying. And we're running through the door. And as we're going through the door, 
flames and sparks are hitting us on the back and it's horrible. I've like the heat is so intense. So all these Christmas lights in the restaurant are exploding everywhere pew, 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 because of the heat. We look up right above our heads above the door to see where the sparks and the heat is coming from and there's flames, flames, flames everywhere like coming in toward the door. And then we get outside, right outside the door, thank God, and we look up and the whole building is in flames. So we get out the door and we're standing with all the people from the restaurant that have been evacuated. And then everyone from uh, down the block comes and gathers and watches the building burn. And we're standing with the restaurant owner and she's just watching her hopes and dreams like burn away. On election day, like the biggest night of the year of our lives, possibly. And all of our friends are texting us, where are you? Come to the party, come to the party. And at first we were like, we can't just leave our friend and like alone watching her life fall apart. And then we realized we can't leave anyway because the fire truck has penned us in and we're not going anywhere. So we stand there till 3.30 in the morning and wait until the fire engine leaves and we go home absolutely defeated. Even though we won, really. I talked to my mom the next day on the phone and I was telling her how happy everyone was and about the fire and how great it was that Obama won and how sad it was watching the building burn. And she said, see, that's why. And I was like, what, see, because Obama won, the building burned down? And then I thought, oh my God, I need to go to TJ Maxx. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we have a small kitchen fire. It's nothing to worry about. Um, Jorge, can you come put this out? Yes, sir. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Oh. Your apron, Jorge. No. Uh, get away from the CO2 tank, Jorge. Oh, God. Oh. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, okay. All right. Um, it's fine. Uh, okay, ma'am. We have a ceviche. To- okay. All right. Um, ma'am, it's fine. Uh, anyway, it's our opening night, and, sir, you're just, you're overreacting now. Oh, God. Um... We have a dessert menu that we uh, we really think you're going to enjoy. There's a cheesecake and um, take my hand, Margaret. So okay. Go, oh, I love you, Margaret. I'm sure Margaret's going to be fine, but let me comp your drinks, okay? My hair. All right. Oh God. Opening night. Yay. Back in elementary school, I was hyper-vigilant to make sure that I was never going to get molested. I saw those educational films that they show you to try to teach you what molestation is without really ever directly saying what it is because you haven't had sex ed yet. So I just had these vague ideas that grown-ups were not allowed to touch you in your private bathing suit areas. I was looking out for it, like, this is never going to happen to me, and if for some reason it does, I'm going to report it to a trusted adult. When my first grade teaching assistant, Mrs. Wolf, took me to the back of the classroom one day because I told her that I had a stomach ache and told me that I should try unzipping my pants, I kind of freaked out because in my head I was like, this is how it begins. This is how molestation happens. I'm on the lookout, go me. So I like refused to unbutton my pants. 
And then after that, one time, my grandma was babysitting for me, and she was like, this is going to be secret grandma and Lynn alone time. And she covered my face with kisses and, like, you know, kissing all up on my forehead and, like, all gross wet kisses. And I was like, secret time? Like, secret is a keyword that I should look out for. That means that this is molestation, too. Oh, my God, my own grandma's molesting me. But in my heart, I was like, no, grandma can't be doing anything wrong. This doesn't feel wrong. So I didn't say anything. So fast forward about a year to second grade. And I still don't really understand what sex is. By this point, like I had a little brother. So my mom had gotten me a book that told me where babies came from. But I just understood it in like the most kind of like basic utilitarian sense, like penis goes in a vagina and that makes a baby and like I don't know why anybody would do that for any other reason that's weird until I found my dad's stash of porn magazines up in the secret top drawer of his armor where I wasn't really supposed to go there were just all of these old magazines and I would hide them under my bed and under my pillow so that I could look at them and figure out what was going on. I looked at Penthouse Forum and I was like, I finally get what sex is. And I like kind of started to get an idea of like what molestation really was. And I also looked at Club, which was like even pornier than the other porn mags. And that had a a lesbian pictorial, which blew my mind because Uh, It had these two, like, busty blonde lesbians getting it on in a bathroom stall, and they had these speech bubbles coming out of their mouths as they did it, talking to each other in this, like, weird pigeon English that was like, hey, are you les? Funny, me les too, written in, like, pre-internet weirdo, like, I can't type talk. So in my head, that that meant that all lesbians looked like that, hooked up in bathrooms because it was deviant sexual behavior, and also that they, like, could barely speak English. So I was like, I've never met a lesbian. Like, I've never met anybody like this. This was, like, a whole culture and species of humans that I couldn't, like, possibly understand. And I was also reading and thinking, like, oh, my God, like, What if reading this makes me a lesbian? Is this going to happen to me next time I'm in a bathroom? Like, what's going on? So I learned about heterosex, lesbian sex. I thought I knew everything at that point. I was like, I got to share this with somebody, but obviously not my parents because I would get in, like, so much trouble. So I decided to share it with my most goody-two-shoes, Pollyannish friend, Anne-Marie, who had moved maybe six months ago from Ireland and was, like, a super Irish Catholic girl from like a very Irish Catholic family and I guess I knew that she would probably be like the most shocked. One day Anne-Marie was over at my house and I was just waiting for the right moment to whip out this magazine from under my dresser drawer. I was hiding it not too well and just like shock her with all this awesome stuff and like I was hoping that she would like be as excited and shocked as I was. I take it out, I'm like showing her like all these booby women and she's just aghast. And she had these very big round saucer like eyes, like, what oh my what what is this? And I thought it was maybe gonna be a real excited kind of what is this? Like I was like, let's look at more of this and talk about what's going on. No, this was as if we had just stumbled on two dead bodies or something. She's like, We've gotta we've gotta tell our parents about this. Like, what? Like, that's the opposite of what we need to do. Like, they are going to, like, ruin our fun. That's not what you do. So I was thinking, like, okay, she does not deserve this 
amazing gift that I have bestowed upon her. So I was just like, screw her. A couple weeks later, I was at Anne Marie's house and just playing, and her mom calls me in and tells me that she has to talk to me for a second, which was kind of weird because, you know, how often does your friend's mom like come in and say she needs to talk to you alone? So I go in there, like, having no idea what she's going to talk to me about. And her mom, Helen, was also very Irish Catholic. She says, So, Anne-Marie told me about the big booby women that she saw. She's very scared of the big boobies. And I just, like, remember thinking, like, "Uh uh-oh, this is it. Like, I am in trouble. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, they're really scary. Ha ha ha. Like, you know, acting like I too was extremely innocent. And like, the reason I showed it to her was, was because like, I was really scared of it too, which was, you know, utter bullshit. Like, I was completely fascinated by this. I thought maybe if I acted innocent enough, I would be able to get out of it without getting in trouble. And then her mom turns to me and says, So, they're your dad's magazines? Um, yeah, they were in my house. So your dad, your dad, he does those things with you, right? The things that, that you were looking at in the pictures, in the magazines? He's, he does those things in the magazines with you, doesn't he? And that was when I just felt my stomach drop because I just knew that that was bad news. I couldn't even fully understand in my head like what the consequences of that would be, but I knew it was bad. I knew for a fact my dad did not do anything but have the magazines and that he would be upset with me probably or at least concerned with having seen them and I was picturing him going to jail with like handcuffs and maybe he was going to get the death penalty and it was all going to be my fault and I never should have showed it to her and I'm just starting to panic so I start crying and her mom took that as a sign that she was right so she just pulls me close to her and envelops me in her arms and just starts like patting me on the back and saying, it's going to be okay. We're going to get you help. He's never going to hurt you again. And not realizing that what she was doing was hurting me like way more than this imaginary thing that had happened to me. So I just started panicking, trying to get out of it. Like, no, no, he didn't do anything. He never touched me. And she just had her own agenda and was not listening to a word I was saying and was like, we're going to tell your mom. So as soon as my mom gets there, I, like, throw myself in front of her and, like, we got to leave, Mom. I'm really sick. And my mom says, okay, well, we can leave in a couple minutes. But, you know, Helen said she has to talk to me about something really important. At that point, I just, I knew that I was not going to get away with being able to just run out into the car. So I'm just sitting there while my mom is in the room with the door shut with Helen, wondering, like, what's going on? Like, does my mom believe her? Like, does my mom think that my dad really did this? Like, is my mom mad at me for for, for doing this and for getting them in this situation? Like, what's going to happen to our family? So my mom comes out, and when she comes out, she's, like, shaking and just really uncharacteristically, like, uh, like uncomposed and upset and she just kind of like grabs me and it's like oh come on let's let, let's get out of here so I don't even say goodbye to Amory you get into the car and there's like a really loud silence until finally my mom breaks it by saying that was the most humiliating thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life and 
I just didn't say anything. Like, I didn't know what to say. I, I could tell from what she was saying that she didn't believe it. And I could tell she wasn't mad at me, but there was just, like, so much unsaid, and I, I didn't know what to say to, like, make things better. Should I apologize? What should I do to fix this? We just never really talked about it until I was in my 20s, and I guess I just kind of carried it with me for a really long time. And when we finally talked about it, my mom shared a little bit more about how she felt and the awkwardness of that and how horrible she felt. And we never really even got that in-depth about it. I wish that she had talked more directly to me about it at the time. I try to give her some kind of leverage for the fact that she was just completely in shock. But, you know, maybe later on in the car after just talked more in depth about how had that made me feel and what really had happened and what were those magazines for. And that wasn't really what sex normally was, that that was just like strange movie-like depiction of what sex was rather than what it really was. And, um, you know, just had a more kind of frank and open discussion about things. She keeps it hidden well. <laughs> I'd say so. Well, have you ever done mommy and daddy things? Many a times. I've never done that. Why don't you uh, come on by my pants and... What? Yeah. Just do it. I promise. No, no, no. Here, give me your hand once. This way you can always say you felt another pussy now. Okay. Why don't you take my shirt and bra off? Look at those nipples. You like them? I do. Are you ready to try kissing? Okay. You are getting excited. I'm gonna try it to you. This is a big step you're taking. So just stop whenever you want. What did you feel? Um, I know, it just felt so good. of stuff to talk about. This is Aquarius, uh, originally by George Shearing. This is the Todd Turgy Tangy Turgy re-edit. <laughs> oh, dear God. That's not how you pronounce it, but it's something like that. Before that, we heard a couple of lesbians speaking perfectly good English. A little piece uh, edited by Jeff Barr. And before that, we heard the writer and comedian Lynn Bixenspan with a story we call The Big Boobies. Let me explain what happened with Lynn. After she recorded that story with us, she finally dared to broach some more specific questions to her mother than she'd ever asked before about that situation 20 years ago. And she learned something pretty extraordinary. Her mother told her that woman had never mentioned molestation. That woman had simply said to Lynn's mother, you've got porn in the house. So just a few days ago, Lynn's mother expressed extreme sorrow that there hadn't been better communication because it was so much ado about nothing. And before that, a sketch, a sort of a comedy sketch called Fire by David Crabb. 
Our last story comes from an extraordinary young man. This is the wonderful stand-up comedian Bodger Millard. We named the story after the literal translation of the word Mojave, which is where the battle took place. I grew up in the Mojave Desert. It's very difficult for me to admit that. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know the Mojave Desert, it's in California, and the, it, it's kind of like Lord of the Flies, but for adults. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you know the beginning of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas when they're driving from L.A. to Las Vegas and there's that middle part where the drugs begin to take in and they're driving on Highway 15 and they're like swerving down the road and bats start attacking his eyes? Uh, that's where I went to elementary school. <laughs> and so, for me and my sisters growing up, it was really... We didn't really have any adults that we could, like, rely on to teach us you know, the things that you need to know to be, like, a normal human being. And, like, for example, my first babysitter that I can remember was one of my mom's friends named Larry. And Larry, yeah, like most Larrys, creepy, douchebaggy, <laughs> slick back hair, horrible. And, um, and one day Larry comes over and he's going to babysit us. My sisters leave the room. And uh, Larry sits down and he puts, uh, he gets out a VHS tape and he puts in the VHS tape into the VCR and he turns on the TV. And all of a sudden I start to realize that, you know, what he had put on is what is called Faces of Death. <laughs> right, which for those of you who don't know Faces of Death, it's kind of like America's Funniest Home Videos but and take out all like the family funny stuff and put in just people dying. And that's, and that's basically what this guy was showing me. And he was amazing, Larry was great. He was like, he would like uh, hit the pause button twice which would cause it to like uh, go in slow motion and he would do audio commentary on like all the parts that he thought were fake. You know, he would be like, be like see the, the, the alligator, how it's like, that, attacking that corpse. Yeah, you can totally tell that that's not a, a, a real human being. And I'd be like nine years old, you know, and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, totally. That doesn't look like a human corpse at all, you know. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea, because people in the Mojave Desert aren't, aren't bad people, you know what I mean? Like, to my dad, they are. And they were back in the 80s when he was trying to get custody of my sisters, right? To him, my mother was a crystal meth addict, but when you're seven, eight, or nine, your mom's not a drug addict, she's just really good at Tetris. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and, and that's, she could kick anybody's ass at Dr. Mario, and that's all I knew. And she loved professional wrestling. For a kid, how great is that? I mean, she would take us to wrestling events. And that, that's, that's great. But then there comes that moment in your childhood. And for me, it was, I was nine years old, and I was sitting in my backyard, and it was, we were living in this like three-bedroom house, and we were sitting in my backyard, and I had a bowling ball in my hand, and I, it was a personalized bowling ball. It was blue and glittery and great. And I was trying to smash it open on the concrete. And, uh, and then I looked to my right, and I noticed that my sister's Siamese cat had gotten out of the house and was climbing on the top of, of our wooden fence that lined our backyard. And the dogs, our dogs, 
also known as the cat. And they started barking and like jumping at the fence and they're like, the fence was like flailing back and forth and finally the cat just falls into the dogs. And the dogs just start attacking the cat and just like viciously chomping at it and viciously attacking it. And I'm like, I need to do something. So I jump up and I run across the backyard and, and I jump in there and I'm kicking the dogs out of the way and and immediately, I get into the middle of it, and I can see the cat, and the cat's back leg is, being, is in the mouth of one of the dogs. And, and I reach in for the cat, but the cat reaches down with its mouth and bites me right here on my leg. And the dogs are pulling, and the cat's teeth is like stitched. It's like into my flesh. And the, and the dogs are like pulling and pulling, and the cat's pulling my leg. And so I'm being dragged in the backyard by these animals. And eventually, the cat uh, stops, and uh, I don't need to know, I don't need to, for it to be in slow motion to know that it's dead. And I walk over back to the patio, and at this point I notice that my leg is like bleeding, and it, I can feel like pulse going through my leg and my entire body, and immediately my entire body is like soaked in sweat. And I'm like, I need to get to my mom. So I go into the living room, and she's sleeping. You know, because it's five in the afternoon. <laughs> and, and so I start pushing at her. I like try to start, to start waking her up, but she's not waking up. And then eventually she comes to, and she looks at me, and I explain to her that I was bitten in the leg by a cat, and then our sister's cat is dead, and, and we need to do something, you know? She jumps up, she jumps into action, like parents are supposed to. And she goes into the kitchen and she brings back a napkin and to put on my leg and we jump into my car, our car, this blue Oldsmobile, and we drive down a dirt road. We get to this doctor's office and I'm sitting there with my mom and she's saying to me, everything's gonna be okay, everything's gonna be okay. And I look to my left and I see this lady, just a regular Mojave Desert lady, cheekbones caved in, you know, scab marks on her face, hair missing. <laughs> and, I, and I look at her and on her, on her lap she has a box and the box has like little slip marks on the side. And I look inside the box and I'm like, there's a cat in there. And I realize my mom had taken me to the veterinarian. And you ask, what's the veterinarian gonna do? <laughs> Remember, Lord of the Flies for adults. <laughs> Fucker comes out. <laughs> he just looks at my mom, looks at me, looks at my leg and just goes, come on in. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it wasn't the best childhood, but got to play a lot of video games. About like 15 years later, I'm in uh, New York City. You know, I'm trying to do the whole comedy shit. After the club, I go outside and I'm standing there and this comedian comes up to me and he's like probably 40, 50 years old. And he uh, is like a biker dude, you know. And uh, he comes up to me, because I mentioned I was from California, and he comes up to me and he says, uh, he's from Riverside, California. And I'm like, oh, I'm from Apple Valley, California, in the Mojave Desert. It's like, you know, 30 minutes away from there. And he goes, one time, I was at a gas station in Apple Valley, and this woman offered to give me a blowjob for $5 worth of gas. And without missing a beat, I said, 
You should have told her that for the same amount of effort, she could have siphoned gas out of someone else's tank for free. <laughs> and he said, you are from the Mojave Desert. Thank you, everybody. Good night. That's all she wrote this time, folks. This is Group Love Behind Me Now, a song called Don't Say Oh Well. They're at grouplovemusic.com. I guess all I want to say now is uh, today's the day, folks. Take a goddamn Mickey Fickin' Risk. Take my hand, Margaret. Don't let go. I love you, Margaret.